Just Thrive Probiotic is the first and only 100% all-natural spore-form DNA verified and tested probiotic supplement. What is spore-form DNA? Well, spores are created by various bacteria to protect themselves against harsh environments. So the fact that Just Thrive uh, uses spore-form DNA and spore-form bacteria means that these bacteria are going to survive the stomach acid and go to your colon and your lower digestive system, where is where they're supposed to go, and help you out and increase their effectiveness. So I think it's a fantastic thing that they have spore-form bacteria as part of their probiotic. It's the subject of uh, groundbreaking clinical studies, and Just Thrive has demonstrated incomparable effects on the gut and undeniable connection to the immune system and brain. So Just Thrive, out of the goodness of their hearts, uh, they're offering my listeners 15% off site-wide. So if you go to justthrivehealth.com today, put in the code GENIUS15 to get advantage of uh, incredible savings and learn more. And I just got some in the mail as a thank you from Just Thrive, and I'm, I took my first two tonight, and I'm looking forward to seeing the effects. So again, go to justthrivehealth.com today. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1%. A real Jesus. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Daniel Pepe. Now, he's an associate professor at Baylor University. He's also a graduate program director. Uh, he covers paleontology, paleoecology, and paleogenomics. So, Daniel, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, no problem. Tell me about your research. What, uh, what do you do? Well, my research is focused really on understanding how ancient terrestrial ecosystems respond to climate change in the past. So uh, the kinds of questions that I'm interested in understanding are, or how do plants and animals change when climate change? How does environmental change influence uh, the evolution of plants and animals? And then how do those plant and animal communities influence each other? And so it's really trying to understand what, what communities, terrestrial ecosystems, and terrestrial communities were like in the past and how they responded to climate change. And then um, we can then think about that information for understanding what's happening today and what might happen in the future. Oh, so what time periods in history seem to be particularly amenable to observing this? Yeah, so we can, I mean, we can look through much of Earth history, actually. My, I, I focus on a few different periods of time in Earth history. So um, my specific area of expertise is, is studying fossil plants. And one of the things that's pretty cool about plants is that plants reflect the environment in which they grow in. And we all kind of know that intuitively. You know, it's like in hot, dry places, find more grasses in cooler places, uh, or maybe a, a different, if we think about like really warm and wet places, there are lots of trees. We have like sort of our tropical rainforests. And so the really nice thing about plants is that plants tell us a lot about the environment that they grow in. And we can actually use information that we know about modern plants to help reconstruct climate in the past. And so the time periods that I focus on specifically are the period of time just before and just after the dinosaurs went extinct. So the end of the Cretaceous and the, and the Paleocene, 
And that's a window of time between about 70 million years ago and about 50 million years ago. And then another interval of time that, uh, that I, I study is, uh, is in the Miocene. So between about 15 and 20 million years ago. And, uh, and that work that I do is in Eastern Africa. And that's focused on the time in which uh, early apes were evolving. So the kinds of questions we ask there are trying to understand what was uh, the environment like, what were plant communities like, and how did those um, how did those influence the evolution of apes and eventually the evolution of of our lineage of, of humans? Um, and then I also work in the more recent time in the last about hundred thousand years, asking similar kinds of questions in East Africa, trying to understand how climate and environmental change influenced mammal communities and, and humans are part of those mammal communities. One of these uh, scenarios or time periods has held the greatest uh, interesting set of observations for you. And what are they? Let's yeah, dive deeper I mean, into one of them. Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, there's each of them represents its own sort of very interesting question, interesting set of questions. I think one of the ones that's that's particularly interesting, uh, and I guess maybe particularly relevant to think uh, to sort of us humans is is the time period in the Miocene and trying to understand like. Where did early apes live on the landscape and what did those landscapes look like? And there's a lot of ideas and, and a lot of hypotheses that have been presented, thoughts that maybe early apes evolved in, in forested environments and, and those were the environments they thrived in. Um, and, and the work that I've been doing for, for more than a decade um, has been trying to reconstruct those, those early ape landscapes those plant communities and figure out exactly where the, where the, where the early apes were on the landscape. And, and what our work is, has found is that there's a huge diversity of landscapes. We have everything from tropical rainforests to wooded grasslands. And so wooded grasslands are very open. There aren't very many trees. Um, obviously, tropical forest systems are really closed and really dense. You know, there's interlocking branches that, that make a closed canopy. And what's really interesting is that these early apes are living in all of these different environments. And so um, that suggests that that one of the things that may be kind of a hallmark of the ape and, and human lineage is the ability to live and adapt and thrive in multiple habitats. And that may be one of the reasons why apes have been so successful and, and why eventually our lineage of humans ends up being so successful. And so, you know, we have apes living in these super dense forests, but also living on much more open environments and being really successful in both of them. And that's a really cool and interesting result. Well, in terms of the plants and things that they would have eaten, what have you discovered there? And what was the climate like at the time of early apes? Yeah, so in, in Eastern Africa, it's it, the climate's actually, what's, what's pretty interesting is we see a lot of variability in, in climate, both across space. Um, so geographically, we see differences and then also through time. Um, and so what we see is that it's very warm, you know, as warm or warmer than it is today. And then, and then in terms of like rainfall, uh, the amount of rainfall per year, that's something that changes. And so some time periods, it's very, very wet and there's, you know, more than, more than a couple meters of rainfall. Uh, and then other times it's, it's much drier. Um, so, you know, much less than a meter of rainfall. And so those much more open environments that we see, those wooded grasslands are, are time periods or places on the landscape that are much drier, that have really major differences in precipitation between the wet season and the dry season. Perhaps there's prolonged periods of time where it's very dry. And those intervals where um, that are forested, those are, those are typically times when it's a lot wetter. And there's a lot more rainfall perhaps throughout the year or in the wet season, it's raining a whole lot more. So we're seeing, we're seeing this like variability uh, depending on where we are and depending on 
where we are in space, but also in time. And in terms of what the, what the apes are living in, it really depended on the environment. And so, you know, in the environments that are more open, it looks like they're probably a lot of them are eating leaves and maybe they're eating some of the leaves out on the edges of the branches. So there's fresh, new, little tasty leaves that are growing. In the more closed environments, they're probably eating some leaves and, and some, some bark and also some fruits. And so they're, they're eating different diets depending on where they are and what the landscape looks like. So it sounds like from what you're saying, climate is variable, I guess, as it always has been. Was the climate similar to it is today, again, that the early apes were exposed to? I know it depends on where they lived, but yeah. did they, did, were they around long enough that you could see climate variation and how they were affected? And over what span of years would you need to look in order to see the trends maybe you're looking for? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. And I think in some of the places that that we work, you know, we're looking at records that are tens to hundreds of thousands of years of long. So geologically, those are relatively short amounts of time, which sounds a little crazy, I think, to some people, because obviously on a human time scale, those are much, much longer. But, you know, over over tens to hundreds of thousands of years, we're seeing really big changes in, uh, in the amount of rainfall, for example. So uh, one of the sites that I work at, uh, this site called Rasinga Island, we have a, an interval of time between uh, about um, 18 and a half. So between, let's see, between about 18 million years and 18 and a half million years. So we have about a half a million years or so of time represented. Um, and so we, we start out at the, the oldest deposits where we have a really dense tropical rainforest. Precipitation is, is maybe uh, two and a half to three meters of rainfall a year. Temperatures are, you know, 28 to 35 degrees Celsius. So really warm and really wet. And then over um, a couple hundred thousand years, we see a really dramatic decrease in precipitation. And so precipitation goes down to maybe a meter or a meter and a half. So it's about half as much, but temperature stays the same. And so temperature stays the same and rainfall is reduced by half. So we have much more amounts of evaporation. It's much drier. It probably actually physically feels hotter. We go from this forested system to this much more open environment. We've got evidence of ponds that are drying up periodically throughout the year, um, or even maybe drying up for long periods of time. And then over the next couple hundred thousand years, we see a return to increased amounts of precipitation and returning back to forested environments. And so it's like this, you know, over this half a million year window of time, we see really dramatic changes in the amount of rainfall and really dramatic changes in the plant communities. And what's really interesting is we have the same species of apes living through this entire time period. And so suggesting that these apes are, are actually adapting to these changes in precipitation, and probably because the changes in climate are over long enough time periods that the organisms are able to adapt to those changes. So as it's getting drier, they're changing their behaviors or they're changing their habitat preferences or their food preferences that allow them to be successful and allow them to adapt and, and continue to thrive despite the fact that the environment is changing. Um, and so the sort of swing of going from wet to dry back to wet is over a long enough time period that the organisms living on the landscape are able to adapt and evolve in response to those climate changes. To give your body the important immune support it needs so you can feel your absolute best, get your gut in order with Just Thrive Probiotic. Uh, very nice of them. They're offering 15% off for listeners all across their website. So go to justthrivehealth.com and put in the code GENIUS15. You can take advantage of incredible savings and learn more about their products. Well, if you look at just one year, I mean, the climate changes dramatically throughout the season. So sure. are these other long-term cycles 
a lot more dramatic or I mean, you know, well, so happen I think, over the span of many lifetimes, like within yeah. a given lifetime, how much change would a, you know, an ape or whatever experience and how did it react to it? Sure. And I, so I think the one, one thing is we have to think about like the difference between climate and weather. And so, which is a, which is a nuanced difference, but it is an important difference. Right. And so on every given year, on any given year, um, depending on where you are. Um, so I, I live in central Texas, Right. And so um, we see big changes in temperature uh, and rainfall. The winter, it's it's close to or below freezing for part of the year. Uh, in the middle of the summer, it's incredibly hot. Right. It's it's more than uh, 40 degrees Celsius, more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And so just within an entire within one year, we see a huge changes in temperature. Um, we see big changes in rainfall. There's times when it rains a ton. There's times when it's super dry. And so we we need to think about. So that's our those are changes in weather, right? And then we need to think about things in terms of um, climate. And so when we think about climate, we're talking about many years together, or many decades, or many centuries, or in, in geologic time, we're talking about hundreds to thousands to tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions of years, right? And so any one individual, so all of us that are living today, right, we're experiencing changes in climate. And we're experiencing those because they're manifest over many years. So the summers are getting warmer, the winters are getting warmer. Um, and so we're experiencing those changes in climate. So I suspect that in these records we're talking about, that I'm talking about in, in the Miocene, that some of these changes where these organisms were experiencing over their lifetime, maybe they live for, you know, 10 or 20 years. And so they're seeing over that period of time, they're seeing it's getting drier and drier and drier. And then over the entire lifetime of a single organism, maybe there's not this dramatic change in, in climate, like maybe precipitation only goes down a little bit, but over uh, many generations, they're experiencing these really much more significant and much longer um, changes. So maybe, you know, you're talking many, many generations over a thousand year period of time. And many, many generations is, is a long enough period of time for an organism to adapt, where in comparison to like what's happening right now, where temperatures are increasing pretty dramatically over really short periods of time, over decades, those are shorter than a lifespan. And so those are much more difficult to adapt to um, because you can't, you don't have that generational change to adapt, slow generational change to slowly adapt to changes in climate. Like that's what we're experiencing now, which is very different from the records we're talking about 20 million years ago. Well, what's the official uh, metrics? How much has temperature gone up and over what time period? Yeah. So we're talking about globally temperatures increased over the last century by about a degree and a half. And so different places on Earth have experienced those temperature changes in different ways. Um, some places have experienced really profound, much, much larger changes in that. And other places have experienced smaller changes. What we're seeing is the, the poles are experiencing changes, much larger changes. So it's getting warmer. The best way to put it is temperatures uh, overall are getting warmer in the poles uh, at a faster rate. And they've changed at a larger magnitude than they have um, closer to the closer to the equator. But if we average that out across the world, across the globe, we're seeing this like change of uh, of a degree and a half or more um, over that last century. Well, historically, what have been the um, the temperature changes and over what time period? You, you mean like through Earth history or uh, yeah, through, through the histories history. that you observe? Yeah. So I mean, we're seeing probably um, you know over. This 500,000 year window of time, temperature is actually not changing a whole lot. We're, we're looking, we're on the equator, we're on um, 
in equatorial Africa and Kenya. And so temperatures are, are staying pretty much the same, or at least within the resolution of our reconstructions, you know, within the uncertainty of our reconstructions. And so what we're really seeing is much more large changes in precipitation while temperatures staying about the same. Oh, even over these millions of years of time periods? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're talking, the thing that's hard to totally resolve is, you know, the uncertainty of our estimates are maybe a couple of degrees. They're plus or minus two to plus or minus five degrees. And so there's probably small scale changes in temperature, but broadly speaking, temperatures are very warm and, and pretty similar to this window of time. When you have an organism it lives locally somewhere, the weather would affect it, but the overall climate, it'll affect it or it'll not affect it. It'll just affect it in its own way locally where it's at. In other spots, sure, it could be very variable, but when you're looking to try to establish the climate in which, let's say, a population of apes lived, what are you looking for locally? And again, wouldn't that just constitute local weather? Like, How do you have the concept that weather, weather versus climate fall on the same, I don't know, thought? And then yeah. the, the creature that lives there, again, they're is it climate that's driving their behavior or is it really weather? Yeah, I think that, so when we're looking at, so in my work, for example, what, what I can do is we collect from a single deposit, we'll collect hundreds of, of fossil leaves and look at the size and the shape of those leaves. And we can use that information to reconstruct uh, temperature and precipitation. And so the kinds of deposits where we find the fossils are things like um, we find them in ponds, or we find them in deposits that were along stream sides. And so the way to think about that is these are accumulations of leaves that would have accumulated over many years. We're, not, we're generally not looking at a single year. We're, we're looking at many years, in some cases, decades, in some cases, maybe even centuries. And so what we're doing is we're, we're combining this information. So these deposits that represent a relatively short window of time, when we think about the history, the 4.6 billion year history of the earth, um, a really short period of time, but something that's longer than a single season. So longer than just the, that, that weather context. And so we can, what we can do is we can collect many of these fossil leaf sites through time, and we can reconstruct the temperature and precipitation of, of each individual site. And then we can look at them so we can go from oldest to youngest and make reconstructions through time. And we're reconstructing that local climate. And then what we can do is compare that information to other sites of the same age to start understanding patterns of regional climate. And ultimately, um, if we can compare it to other records on land and in the ocean, we can start to reconstruct what global climate looked like. If anyone makes a, um, a claim about climate at any particular time, how many sites over the world would they need for it to be statistically robust? Yeah. Seven I mean, sites, I... 10 sites, and where? And does anyone do that? Or do they just say like, oh, we found these things in you know, Southern Africa, and therefore we extrapolated to mean the climate must have been this? Yeah. So what we can do is, so we can say, if we just take our information, as I'm saying, that the, the example I was giving you from Rasinga Island, that tells us that tells us about a specific location. So we're talking about, you know, a, a relatively geographically restricted place. And so then the next step is, OK, now we can compare information from here to other places in eastern Africa. And so, you know, we have a record of, of 12 different sites that span um, a similar interval of time and they're geographically spread over over a few thousand kilometers. So now we're starting to talk about regional patterns. And then 
if we have, we can then compare those records to other similar age records in other parts of the world to then start talking about much broader patterns. And so it really depends on the kind of question you're asking, and it depends on the context of the, of the place that you're working. So if we want to, we can tell you about, you know, one location, and then we can start comparing to other sites to start thinking about more regional patterns, and then comparing multiple big regional patterns, like information from different regions to start talking about more global patterns of change. And that's the kind of stuff that, that people are doing in different time periods all over the world. I mean, is there a consensus about certain time periods or other time periods particularly hard to study? Like what's been observed when you look at the, you know, the record of climate? Yeah. And so there's definitely the earth, earth history is really long. So there are some time periods where we know a whole lot more about than others. I mean, depending on the kinds of records that we're looking at. So, you know, one of the things that we can do if we think about reconstructing climate, for example, if we think about the recent records, so let's say the last hundred years, we actually have physical measurements. We have things, we have measurements from thermometers, um, like in the oceans, on land, right? And so in that case, we actually have like physical measurements of those. As we get further back in time, we need to use other ways of reconstructing climate. And so in that case, we use things that are called proxies. And so proxies are, are um, they, what, what we can do with the proxies, we can understand the relationship between something and climate, and we can use that to reconstruct what climate was like in the past. And so as we go further back in time, we have different proxies that we can use. And so more in more recent records, there are many different proxies. We can use things like tree rings. We can use ice cores, for example. And so in the case of like ice cores, we can um, scientists actually literally can measure uh, things like bubbles of air that have were trapped in that were trapped in glaciers back through Earth history. And then as we get further back in time, um, where we out to time periods that are that are further back in time than the oldest glaciers that we have on Earth, we have to use other proxies. And so then we can use things like fossil leaves I'm talking about, or, um, or things from fossil soils, or we can use fossils from oceans. Um, and so as we get further back in time, depending on the geologic record, you have more or less information for different periods of time. So that's a very long way of saying we really understand a lot about the more recent history, the sort of last million years or last few million years of Earth history. And then as we go further back in time, um, we have a less complete picture. Uh, so in some time periods, we know a lot about, about certain areas on land or we know a lot about the oceans. And so what we try to do is look at as many places on Earth as we can to then reconstruct global patterns. And so this window of time that I'm talking about, like 15 to 20 million years ago, we have good records on, on multiple continents. We have really good records from ocean cores. And so um, we know a lot about what climate was like, what CO2 was like during this time period. What period of Earth's history is the least known about? Is there a lot of it that's just blank? Yeah. So as you get further, further back in time, um, there becomes less of a record. And so... In particular, like the early the early history of the Earth, um, this time period, the Precambrian, we know probably the least about because they're the least, I guess you could say the fewest geologic deposits that have been preserved. So if you think about one of the things that's really interesting when you think about the Earth history is that because the way that like plate tectonics work, right, we have, um, if you think about, for example, the, um, the Atlantic Ocean. So the Atlantic Ocean is, get, is getting bigger. There's the mid-ocean ridge and it's spreading. 
And so it's creating um, new continental or new oceanic crust is being created all the time. But because the Earth is a globe, if the if the crust is expanding someplace, it actually has to be subducting or or going down or going down into the into the Earth into the mantle. So and so the ring of fire around the Pacific Ocean, we're having what's called subduction. So oceanic crust is sinking under North America and South America. It's sinking under um, Asia, and so. So while the Atlantic Ocean is getting bigger, the Pacific Ocean is getting smaller. And so what that means is that a whole lot of the rock record has actually been recycled through Earth history. Um, The continents that we have are actually quite a lot older than the oceanic crust because they're made up of different rock types. And so they actually sort of sit a little bit higher on the surface. So there are places on Earth, for example, in the Canadian Shield, so in, in northern Canada or in the middle of Australia, where we have huge amounts of incredibly old uh, rocks exposed. So rocks that are billions of years old um, are found in those parts of the world. And so what that means is that we have this like discontinuous record um, through Earth history, because a lot of the rock record has actually been recycled. Um, the crust has been subducted um, into the mantle, and then it's, it gets melted, and then it actually comes out someplace else. So there's time periods... Uh, especially as we get further back in time where there's there's less rock record. And so we know less information, particularly about like ocean records, for example, um, but also on land as well. So, so yeah, as we get further back in time, we know less because we have less rocks preserved. And if we have less rock preserved, uh, we have less ability to reconstruct what the landscape was like, uh, what the environment was like, what the climate was like, what the organisms living there were like uh, to put that all together. Well, very good. Daniel, what's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Yeah, so um, you can uh, go to my website. My website is uh, www.danielpepe.com. And I'm also on um, Twitter, um, at Dan Pepe, probably the two best places. Okay, very good. Well, Daniel, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Remember, before you go, the easiest thing you can do to support your immune system and your gut health is to check out Just Thrive Probiotic. Go to their website, justthrivehealth.com, and use the promo code GENIUS15 at checkout. You get 15% off. Thank you, Just Thrive. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.